Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Welcome. Welcome to North Haven. Welcome to those that are watching via the live stream. Thanks for joining. Uh, we are, uh, my name is Adam, by the way. If we haven't met, um, I would love the opportunity to uh, meet you after the service. I'm uh, usually kind of over in that uh, seating area where the couches are, so uh, please find me and we can connect and I can uh, know you and know how I can pray for you. And uh, we're in the series that uh, we've been calling 24-6, 24-6, and uh, it's based on a book by Matthew Sleeth, and this book has been available and is available for you to purchase. Uh, you can do so in the comments afterwards, it's just $8.00. And it's a really easy read. He's a fantastic writer. Uh, perhaps some of you have already read it. Hopefully that's the case. Um, but uh, you can go ahead and grab this book. Also, you can grab a journal if you haven't yet grabbed one of these. And uh, over the course of this series, for the previous two weeks, and then for today and for next week, uh, each week we've been giving you five statements or questions that are on the back of your worship card. And uh, these statements, we're encouraging you to uh, journal about each of these um, in this journal over the course of this series, a practical way in which we can uh, uh, live out some of the things that we're learning in this, in this series. Uh, so uh, 24-6, what is that? Really quick, 24-6, the whole thing is really about the importance of keeping and observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath, maybe you're familiar with that word, maybe you're not. Uh, so the Sabbath is basically a 24-hour hour period of time each week that you set aside and you say, I'm going to use this time to separate from all the distractions that the world is so good at giving us, and I'm going to exist in rest and in listening. Uh, I'm going to, I, what I like to uh, call it is really practicing for eternity, and, uh, and it's just a, a day of enjoyment. It's a day of spending time with friends and family, uh, resting, reading, um, taking naps. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> uh, so we've been talking about this. Our family, we've been doing this uh, together. I've been doing it uh, privately for the last about year and a half, and then our family has been doing it. Uh, for the last three months, and we call it our stop day. It's a little bit more palatable for our kids to understand, but that's basically what the Sabbath means. And so over the course of the series, the last two weeks, we've been looking at a, a couple of things, kind of doing a flyover on this whole topic. And I want to just quick kind of give you a little bit of this tidbit too. Uh, not only are we diving into this here, this is the month of February, the year 2021, of year of our Lord 2021, uh, but we're going to dive again into this topic in November. Why would we do that? Well, because, you know, for a lot of you, I'm just now getting you to start really seriously thinking about what it means to keep and observe the Sabbath, a 24-hour period of time, a stop date in your life on a weekly basis, talking about you know, what is that and then why is that so important. And just like it's, it's uh, one thing for me to tell you it's good for you to do this or, or that or whatever the case may be, it's easy to say that, but it's actually another thing altogether to put this into practice and to have this be something that exists in your life on a regular basis. And so I'm wanting to kind of open the floodgates 
through this series with the hope that we will continue to grow, not only as individuals, but then as a church. And then when we come back into this in November, that we'd have even more clarity, maybe some practice under our belts, maybe kind of dipping our, our toe into the water to, uh, to find out what it's like, and then getting up to our waist so that in November, we're ready to actually dive in. What does that look like for us as individuals and then as a church? So again, over the last two weeks, we've been talking about this. Uh, the first week, we talked about what, what is the Sabbath, what is the Sabbath. And one of the things that we recognize is that God rested. So if you've read any part of the beginning of the Bible, which is the case for many people, even people that aren't church, right, you know, you decide you're going to read the Bible and you get to about the fourth or fifth chapter and you're like, what in the world is this? And then you never, you never jump back in. Uh, so you've at least, many of us have read the first four or five chapters. And so if that's the case, you know that God rested. On the seventh day, he rested. That's curious. We talked about that because uh, it, it, that would imply that God was tired, but actually that's not the case. God cannot be tired because he has no limits. If he had limits of any kind, he would cease being God. God didn't rest because he was tired. We talked about how, why he rested it was because he is holy. In that, everything God does if God is God, if we can all agree on that, if God is God, then everything God does is holy because God is holy. If God is holy and everything he does is holy, then rest is holy. And if rest is holy, then it's something that we need to pay attention to. That means it's important. Not only important to God, but if it's important to God, that means it's important to us. And so the what is important so the why we talked about last week, and specifically we looked at the word priority and how it is that that word priority came about in the fourth century. Every word has its origin, and that origin of priority came about at that time. And then for, for uh, hundreds of years, it existed as a singular word, priority. We talked about how uh, just since the 1900s, that word's become a plural where now it's priorities. And we talk often about keeping priorities. We have a list of priorities in our lives. There are people that make a living talking about how you can keep your priorities. And what we fail to understand is that priority, the very definition of that, is the first, the highest, the foremost. There can be only one. Highlander, right? It could be only one. Some of you got that. Priority is one. One. One priority. And so when we have priorities, that's really a fallacy. It's an impossibility. It's a complete paradox. It doesn't exist. And so when we have priorities, we're really basically saying then we have no priority. And if we have no priority, then, then your priority can never be, nor is it Jesus. If we have priorities, we can have no priority. And if you don't have a priority, your priority cannot be Christ. And so we talked about how is it that we can, the reason why the Sabbath is so important is because we need to, to refocus, to re-envision our lives with a single priority. 
Jesus Christ. So we talked about what the Sabbath is, and then we talked about why it's so important, but today we're going to begin talking about the how, because I could talk about anything under the sun. I can give you the greatest message in the world, but if I don't tell you how, then there's not a whole lot of good that's going to do you. And so we want to start diving into the how. We're going to look at a broad how today, and then we're going to get a little bit more specific with practicalities next week. But that's what we're going to be honing in on today. Now, Pete Scazzaro, has anybody read any books by Pete Scazzaro? He's a fantastic author, emotionally healthy leader, the emotionally healthy church. He and his wife started a ministry, the emotionally healthy spirituality. And he's really kind of spearheaded uh, the importance of living this duality of emotional health and spiritual health and how it is that those things are intertwined. And one thing that he really highlights is the importance of the Sabbath. And um, as he's talking about that, he has a phrase that I love. He talks about how it is that you and I, uh, that is uh, uh, Christ followers, that people that have given their lives to Jesus. Now, we as humans are called to this, um, but especially as we consider ourselves as Christians, if we say that we're going to follow God's word and we're going to live holy lives pursuing righteousness, this is of the utmost importance. He, he uses a phrase called fashioning a desert. Fashioning a desert. And it's strange because we often think of the desert or the wilderness in negative ways. We think of it as something we don't want to be in, Right? Unless it's minus 20, then we would gladly welcome it. But generally, you don't want to be in the desert. You don't want to be in the wilderness. But, but you know, he, he actually turns it up on his head. Pete Scazzaro, he's like, no, actually, that's what we want. We need to fashion a desert. We need to follow in the footsteps of those in Scripture and then early church fathers. So first I want to look at some, some examples of those in Scripture who fashioned a desert, that is, intentionally pursued the desert, the wilderness, for the sake of being with God. We see first in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 through 11, we see the Israelites lived in this reality. Of course, in verse 10, in the desert land, God found Israel in a barren and howling waste. God shielded Israel and cared for them. He guarded Israel as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and then carries them aloft. And then again, the people of Israel, namely the people of Judah, called to the desert in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 3 through 5, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain uh, and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then we see in the New Testament, John the Baptist is a good example of this, preparing people for repentance and forgiveness in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and appeared in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem 
went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then, of course, Jesus Christ, a wonderful example of fashioning a desert, intentionally going to the wilderness, the desert. Jesus, immediately after being baptized, before his actual ministry began, he went to the desert specifically to fast and to pray in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them that he was, he was hungry. So he resisted temptation during those 40 days, and as a result, the desert became for Jesus a place of renewal and preparation. But it wasn't just examples that we have in Scripture. You know, once, once the church began, um, especially you know, in the first three centuries, church fathers, you know, they, yes, they were theologians. Yes, they were priests and, and they were clergy, but they were first they were, they were uh, um, monastic. They were, they were monk-like. They made a point to fashion a desert in their lives. Early in the church in the first few centuries, that was, time was replete with those who made intentional effort to flee to the desert. And their main focus is in doing that, actually physically fleeing the desert. Because as, we, as you see in history, when the early church began, uh, it, it, it kind of had a symbiotic relationship with the growing Roman Empire. And that growing Roman Empire and the onset and, and popularity of the church created a kind of almost this cacophony um, of, of uh, activity and thought and practice, so much so that it became very cumbersome and chaotic for Christians in that time, especially if you were tasked with the responsibility of shepherding believers during that time. And so there are intentional um, efforts made on the parts of, of pastors or clergy or bishops to actually leave th the craziness of society and fashion a desert for themselves. And when they did that, they did, they did it for four reasons, and they focused on four things. The first is withdrawal from society. That, that sounds pretty attractive to many of us. Withdrawing from society, the chaos of society, the constant demands of society. Uh, the second focus that they had was silence and stillness. Listening, active listening, intentionally creating an environment in which you are being silent and you're being still, waiting on a word from the Lord. They also focused on care and forgiveness. So instead of that just being a complete theoretical idea, instead of that being a theological principle that they preached and told their parishioners to, to emphasize in their own lives, they actually fashioned a desert so they can live that out. They could actually put that into practice. And then in the fourth focus that they had was meditation of Scripture, taking devoted time to ingest the Word of God and allow that to sit and to grow and kind of metastasize and then come out in their lives. But somehow, somehow along the way, over time, we've lost sight of these focuses, have we not? 
And so what I'm encouraging us all to do is to begin doing what Pete Scazzaro suggests, and that is to fashion a desert. I want to encourage all of you to begin fashioning a desert in your lives. That's where this whole idea of a Sabbath, this 24-hour period of time, this stop day is so important. Now, we'll talk a little bit, like I said, next week about the practical things, but uh, don't get me wrong. You know, just because my wife and I and my kids, we are, we are um, observing the Sabbath during this 24, it doesn't mean that our lives are all of a sudden perfect. It doesn't mean that, that the skies have opened up and we're constantly hearing the angels sing hallelujah. You know, we still have to exhibit and live out the presence of God in our lives on a daily basis. It's not just 24 hours, but what 24 hours does is it gives us the space for these things to really take root. And so fashioning a desert, we're not talking literally, of course, we're not talking about creating a, a sandbox in your, in your living room, but instead we're, we're, we're talking about fashioning a deep place, a purposeful, intentional, deep place with God out of which you get a word from God. It is a leaning into God. It is an intentional leaning into God out of which you get a word from him. You get clarity from him for your life. It's fashioning a way of, a way of life that allows you to, on a regular basis, do what those early church fathers set out to do, and that is withdraw from society, it's to be silent, to be still, to listen to God, to live out care and forgiveness, to not have that be just a thought or a theoretical principle or a value that you abide or that you, that you have, but to actually live that in your lives. We've talked about that before, if I could just pause on that for a second. We've talked about how it is that in order for you to truly care, in order for you to truly forgive, in order for you to be there for others, you need to have the space to be able to do that. If we don't have the space for us to be able to do that, and we just exist in the, in the chaos of our lives, we become very tunnel-visioned, and we become oblivious to the needs of people all around us. It's when we slow down that our, our vision becomes this 180 cone and we start seeing stuff we'd never seen before. We start seeing needs that we never saw and we have the time to be used by God. So living out care and forgiveness and then meditating on Scripture, actually taking the time to, to sit with God's Word, to be okay with with hitting a verse and being like, you know what, I'm stopping there and I'm just going to spend the rest of today thinking about these words. Meditating on Scripture, on the Word of God. So I'm not suggesting here, don't get me wrong, that we all become monks and we embrace some sort of uh, monastic existence, although that would be kind of cool. But uh, it's not what I'm suggesting. Other... Uh, uh, what I'm, what I'm actually encouraging us to do, and I love how, again, Pete Scazzaro lays it out, he calls it contemplative spirituality. It is living the spiritual life, it is living your life constantly contemplating 
your relationship in this world with others and specifically with God. And observing a stop day, having 24 hours where you are committed to those things, that goes a long way towards creating a reality for your life even beyond that day. Contemplative spirituality, it's the act of slowing down to be with God. And there are three ways that we can make this a reality in our lives. Three ways that we can fashion a desert, and they are they are this. The first is to pursue limits. We'll get into these details, but first, to pursue limits. And the second way is to commit to preparation. Commit to preparation. And the third way is to remember your first work. We'll talk about what that means, but remember your first work. So the first one that we want to look at, the, three way, uh, the first way in which we can begin to fashion a desert in our lives is to embrace our limits, because we have many of them, and that's okay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we see this verse, and, and Paul, he says something absolutely profound here. Paul wrote, wrote 2 Corinthians. He wrote uh, many of the books in the New Testament. And in this verse, he says this. He says, but we have this treasure, and the treasure is, is the, the glory of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. So Paul is saying that the glory of God resides in us. So what is he saying we are? Clay jars. To show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, if you have any clay pottery in your house, you make it a point to put that in a place where it's, it's going to be relatively safe, right? I mean, you're not going to put that in, in, a, in a place where a two-year-old can reach and throw it down onto the ground or where a dog or a cat can knock up against it. If anything, you try to keep that stuff in a place that is secure, that keeps it protected, and why? Why is it that we do that? Because we know that, that clay pottery is fragile. It is fragile. It is inherently and innately weak. It doesn't take much for it to crack and for it to break. That is who we are. That is who we are. We are innately weak. We are innately vulnerable. We are innately frail. But we spend so much of our time trying to convince ourselves and others that that's not the case. And we, we don't want to ask for help, right? We can become embarrassed when we ask for help. And we want to solve our problems on our own. And we also think we have no limits, but have you ever had an experience where, where there's just one thing, one little thing that happens that in the grand scheme of things seems like such a small thing, but for some reason that one little thing has entered into your life and it's caused everything to tip? You ever had that happen? Please nod your heads. Thank you. <laughs> you start making me feel like I'm crazy. We are innately fragile and we're innately weak because we can only do and handle so much. 
We can only do and handle so much. And so because of this, we need to, we need to live a life of limits. Because we are limited, we need to live our life like we have limits. We need to be able to say this wonderful, wonderful, amazing word. And I want you to, I want you to say it with me. No. Let's say, let's say that together. Be real. No. We need to be able to live limits. Now, Matthew Sleeth, in his book 24-6, he gives some practical ways in which we can kind of live this out. And, and I've taken one of those practical ways and I've adapted to this, to this phrase that I've, I've given myself, and, and, and that is we need to be right-lane people. You need to live a right-lane life. If you're at the Valentine's lunch, my wife so wonderfully and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure lovingly uh, explained to everybody that I like to speed. Well, that, that is true. I don't think I'm the only one. But when I read Matthew Slee's book and I read one of these practical things that you can do to kind of slow down, and that is to always drive in the right lane no matter what, I said, I'm going to give this a try. And I almost went insane the first week. But I've committed to doing this. And there have been, there have been times where I've gotten into the right lane and I've been behind this car that for whatever reason is deciding to go on a highway 40 miles an hour and I'm just like, well, God, here I am. And what's interesting is that when you, just that one little thing, and it's begun to, to permeate into other areas of my life because just that one little thing, as I started to do that, I started to realize, you know what? If I'm going to get from point A to point B, I need to leave a little earlier in order to make sure that I'm able to have enough room and space. I don't want to be rushed because if I feel rushed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start passing cars, right? And so if I have more time, if I'm taking more time, then I have to be more diligent about what I do at home in order to give myself a little bit more time. And if I'm being more diligent with what I'm doing at home, then I'm organizing my life in a different way, and it's just boom, 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 boom. So being a right-lane person is the practice and understanding that because I have limits, I need to live my life in limits because there's only so much that I can do. There's only so much that I can take on. And, and one of the things that we do as a, as a church and as believers is we flip this whole idea that we think that we need to, we need to do mission first. Now, this sounds like a cliche at this point, but if you and I were on an airplane, we were sitting next to each other, and all of a sudden the plane started going down, and the, the oxygen mass came down, what do they tell you? They tell you that, that you're supposed to fit yours on first before you start helping others. Because what good would it do if you had all the intention and desire in the world to help the lives of people around you, but yet you didn't ensure that you were able to actually do that? But that's what we do as a church oftentimes, is we believe that, that uh, we have to complete the mission and we disregard whether we are committing ourselves to rest and stillness in contemplation, receiving a word from God. 
We cannot focus on the mission first. We need to focus first on being good at rest and stillness and contemplation. And it sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like an opposite, but it's not. It sounds like it shouldn't make you better at mission if you slowed down. But that's exactly what it does. So we need to embrace limits. The second thing that we need to, that we need to do is commit to preparation. Commit to preparation. What does that mean? Well, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4, it says this, A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Diligence. Preparation. Understanding that every extraordinary thing comes from small steps. If you've ever lost weight before, you know that it just doesn't happen overnight. It requires a, a, a daily committal to, committal? Don't know if that's a word. A daily commitment to specific steps that culminate into extraordinary results. Let me give you another example of, of, of how small steps produce extraordinary results. Take this piece of paper here, for instance. Now, this paper is obviously this thick, and as a result, it is, it is, it is that tall. And if I was to fold this paper in half, it would be twice as big as it was before, correct? If I was to fold this paper in half again, it would be four times as tall as it was prior to that. If I was to fold it another time, it would be how many times as high? Eight, thank you. Eight times. One more time, that would be how many? Sixteen. Another time, that would be thirty-two. If I was to do that one more time, that would be sixty-four. So right now, after seven folds, seven folds, it is 64 times taller than it was when it started. Geometric progression tells us, math tells us, that if we fold this paper, which is pretty much impossible at this point, but if we had a piece of paper that was big enough to accommodate to be able to fold 30 times, so right now we're just at seven. If we folded it 30 times total, this paper would be as high as our atmosphere. And if that doesn't blow your mind, consider this. If I was to fold, if we were able to fold, if we had a piece of paper big enough to accommodate to be able to fold 50 times, 50 times it would be the distance from here to the sun. Isn't that crazy? Geometric progression. You do the math, it works out. Because every time you fold it, it doubles. And if you fold it a hundred times, it would be as big as uh, the now known universe. Just a hundred times. It's insane. Small steps produce extraordinary results. 
You know, one of the things that, that people associate the desert, and I get this, and the wilderness with, is they think, you know, that's obviously something we should avoid. The desert, the wilderness is something or a place you end up when you burn out, when you emotionally just kind of explode. No one wants to be in the desert. You know, you may have even heard this said to you or you've said it to others that right now you're, you're in the desert, you're in the wilderness, but you'll find a way out. The hope, rather, is that we can prepare our lives in such a way that we would, that we would never burn out. That's why we fashion a desert. That's why we take the time, the intentional time, to get away, to be silent and to be still, so that we don't burn out, so that we don't burn the candle at both ends, so that we don't emotionally implode. In order to do this, it requires a radical shift. It's a big deal, for instance, for my wife and I and our kids to commit 24 hours where we're not on our computers doing work, where I'm not doing any schoolwork, where the kids aren't doing any schoolwork. We had a, we had a plumbing issue happen on, on Friday, right before our Sabbath, and I had to wait until last night to deal with it. It takes work. It's a radical shift. And the reason it's so radical is because when we slow down, the world doesn't accommodate us. It's not as if the world's like, oh, oh, okay. We're going to take it easy while you slow down a little bit. And the world keeps going. And so in order for us to slow down, we must dictate our response to the world, not the other way around. And this happens one step at a time, and it requires planning. That's why we need to commit to preparation because what's the enemy of rest? If you really think about it, the enemy of rest is procrastination. The enemy of rest is procrastination. And the third focus is we need to remember our first work. You need to remember your first work. We looked at this passage last week, and you've probably heard this verse many times. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. This is when that priority piece comes into, into play. You see, there will be one day where I will not be a pastor anymore. That will just one day, that will happen one day. I won't be a pastor anymore. But when that day comes, I must remember that my first work has always been it currently is and will forever be to be with God. That's your first work. That's your first work. Think of when Adam and Eve were created. They were created to be with God. That's what we were created for. That is your first work. So let me ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with your first work? No matter where you are, no matter what your situation, your first work is to be with God. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, 
It reads, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to dwell with God for the rest of my days, not just for a moment, not just when it's convenient to me, but for the rest of my days. That is my work. That is your work, to be in God's presence. The word gaze here is an unfortunate word. It's, it's, it's a word that we've associated in the English language with kind of a passive glance. We might gaze at something passively, or you might think about it as a, as a teenager who looks long, longingly or with a gaze at, at, at someone they have a crush on. But that's not what this word is, is saying in this verse. It's actually a Hebrew word. And that word means to receive clarity. It means to receive information from God. It basically means that we are to know God. That we are to dwell in His presence so that we can know Him. And we can't know Him unless we dwell with Him. And this happens when we embrace our limitations, we understand them, and we live a life of limits. Because our mission becomes meaningless and fruitless unless, unless we take the time for God to renew us. And this happens when we commit to preparation. To be in God's presence means that you've organized intentionally your life in such a way where it's possible to be with Him one step at a time. And that may, be, that may require you to do some radical things. To say no to some stuff. To to shed some stuff, to get rid of some stuff or some commitments. And this happens when we remember your first work. Your first work. The work that really matters and that is to be with God. To be with God. We have been and always will be called to dwell in the house of the Lord, to truly know Him. So we need to stop depriving ourselves of that work. No one is going to do this for you. You have to commit to it yourself. To dwell, to dwell with God, to gaze, to know Him, to seek to know Him, to truly know Him. That's how we fashion a desert. So would you venture into that with me? To explore truly what it means to live lives where we can be still and silent, where we can withdraw and not feel guilty about that, where we can meditate on
on the Word of God, the Word that gives life, and where we can truly live out what it means to care and forgive others. That's my desire for all of us. I'm looking forward to doing it.